Okay, here we go. We are on session six, engaging the bridegroom in the Song of Solomon. And this is chapter four uh, that we're going to look at today. And chapter four is the critical central part of uh, the, the whole love song. And it is so formative as it relates to our understanding of who God is as a bridegroom God and how he delights in us. And, and this is the centerpiece of the book of Song of Solomon. In fact, I believe chapter 4, verse 9 is the entire thesis of the entire book. It's, it's really where the whole book hits its, its crescendo and its peak. So uh, let's go ahead and we'll plow through the outline. Um, in Roman numeral 1, we're going to look at a little bit of a review from, from last week, chapter 3. Of course, in chapter 3, the maiden, she has gone into a season of divine discipline. If you remember chapter 2, she moved away from uh, his desire for partnership. She said, go ahead and be like a gazelle on the mountains of Bether. That's the mountains of separation. So in chapter 3, remember, she 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 starts the, the moment with, at night on my bed, or night by night on my bed, I sought the one I love, but I couldn't find him. And so she's seeking him in this familiar place of intimacy, but she cannot feel him. She cannot see him. She cannot hear him. She's in the night. Instead of being uh, with that sense of his presence on the, you know, under the shade tree, she is experiencing um, this season without him. And so she says, I will arise now. So this place of not sensing his presence, she, she, it moves her to action. And we found out last week that that's what God does at times. When we're in moments of disobedience, what the Lord will do is he'll take a half step back from us. And he does that so that it will evoke a sense of longing and desire in us to seek him. And uh, it's, a, it's a simple way that he brings divine discipline to us. Now, it's not because he's angry or agitated. A lot of people perceive God's discipline in their life as this, this anger, and that is not it at all. He, he doesn't discipline his, uh, his people, his bride, out of anger. He disciplines us out of desire, uh, he, those whom he loves, he disciplines. He's drawing us into love through discipline. And so uh, what he does is he steps half step back and she says, I will arise now. And she decides to, instead of seeking him in the familiar place, she's going to go about the city and the square. She's going to go and, and look for him. And she, she begins to seek him and, and she asks the watchman, have you seen the one I love? And as, sh- as soon as she passes by the watchman, she finds the beloved, and it's this season of divine discipline. It's come to an end. She's now encountered him, and she comes to this place of revelation where she says, I found him, and I would not let him go. And that's what God is working in us when he takes us into these seasons of divine discipline. He, he's working this, this hunger and this longing, this love sickness into our soul. He wants us to have the sense of what it's like to live without him and come to the conclusion that it's better anywhere with him is better than anywhere without him and uh, our favorite place without him. And so uh, she says, I found him. I would not let him go. And so then what happens there in, in verse six is the scene changes 
And now we see Solomon in chapter three, we see Solomon as the bridegroom and he is coming. He's carried on the palanquin and he's got soldiers, uh, he's, which represent the angel armies. And what he's doing is he's presenting himself as the safe savior. And this is what God wants to communicate to all of us, that in his discipline, he is safe. In his discipline, we are protected, that we are um, cared for and loved even in those seasons of divine discipline. And so she, she sees him as the safe savior and he is inviting her into the plonquin and it's the day of the gladness of his heart, which is the day that he's looking forward to, the day of the wedding. All right. So we come out of Song of Solomon 3, the divine discipline has done its work. And then we're into Song of Solomon chapter 4. And this passage is so powerful. So I just want to read, you know what? I'm just going to read the whole thing. Let's just read all verse, all 16 verses. Song of Solomon 4, starting verse 1. I'm reading New King James Version. It says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from the washing, every one which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a, like a scarlet strand, a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. This is the, the maiden. She says, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And then he answers again in verse seven, you are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from, from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. In verse 9, this is the crescendo. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, oh, my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits. Fragrant henna with spikenard. Spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. With all the chief spices. A fountain of gardens a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. And then she answers, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And I'm going to continue chapter 5, verse 1, because I, see, I believe it goes together. And he answers, he says, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice, I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, oh friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, oh beloved ones. What a powerful, powerful chapter. And 
The language is poetic. It's rich. It's deep. There's revelation in every phrase. And um, this beloved really becomes our, it really becomes our central theme, this, this chapter four. So let's just work through it. So Roman numeral chapter two, uh, I've got it labeled the bridegroom's enchantment with the bride, the bridegroom's enchantment with the bride. And this chapter, probably as, as strong as any chapter in the entire Bible, do we experience the unbridled emotion and delight in the heart of our God for us. And he starts off, he says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. And, uh, and so he's coming, she's coming right out of the season of discipline. And the very first words he speaks to her is, You are beautiful. I love you. You are beautiful. And I want you to notice the use of behold. I love whenever the word behold shows up in the scripture because nobody nobody ever uses behold in their uh, regular life. Like nobody, you know, walks into a room and goes, behold, you look good. No, no one ever says that. But the Lord says it. He says it all over in the Bible. And I love to call that behold is like the divine voila. Like the Lord is going, voila, look. He's drawing attention. He's, he's engaged. He's, he's, he's emoting. And he says, behold, you are beautiful. I love you. Behold, you are beautiful. And he's using it in that verse to draw attention draw significance to the reality of her beauty to him. And it's not just her in the song. Don't allow this to be third person her. Make this you. Recognize this is you when you have gone into a season of disobedience and you've repented and turned to the Lord. The Lord's first words to you are, Behold, you're beautiful. Behold, I love you. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. And I think that what we have to recognize is his words to her, um, they are in response to the movement of her heart. They are not in response to any action she's actually taken. And this speaks so dramatically about the way the Lord thinks about us, the way the Lord feels about us, and the way the Lord perceives even the little yes on the inside. We love to talk about that, how God sees the yes in our hearts. And it's, it's that yes on the inside that moves him. This is the example because she's not actually been obedient yet. She's just said she will be. She's just sought him to find him, to not let him go. But she's not gone with him to the mountains like he invited her to in chapter 2. It's this yes on the inside and that internal reality of that willing heart that enthralls the Lord. He says, that's beautiful to me. And I want you to hear that. I, I really want you to catch that. God sees your willing yes he sees that little yes on the inside of your heart, your desire to love him, to, to go after him, to seek him, to, to be with him. 
and he, he sees the yes on the inside and he says, you're beautiful to me. You're be- you may not have it all perfect. You're beautiful. Very much reminiscent of Song of Solomon chapter one when she says, I am dark but lovely. It's that beautiful yes on the inside that the Lord is affirming to her even right here. Now what he's going to do is he's going to launch into eight different affirmations of her, of her beauty, of her developing beauty. So in Roman numeral three, I lay those out for us, the, these eight different affirmations. And, and this is what I want you to hear, that when you turn to the Lord, oftentimes believers, they, they turn to the Lord in a, out of a season of maybe disobedience or sin or something, and, and they feel like they're in this shameful place of purgatory and they're trying to get the Lord to, to like him again. And that is completely false in terms of how the Lord relates to us. He doesn't uh, think, well, just be in purgatory for a while. And if you stay, you know, faithful while you're in purgatory, then I'll, I'll like you again and I'll say positive things. But right now I'm not, I'm not feeling it. That's not him at all. What he does is when our hearts turn, he goes, you're beautiful and I love you. And let me call out of you all the positive things that I'm seeing right now. Because let me affirm even the developing virtues of your beauty. Because I want to tell you the way that I see you. Because I see you. I see who you are on the inside. And so he gives these eight. And I'm just going to run through them fairly quickly. There's uh, much depth in each one of these. These are all obviously symbols. Um. The first one he says is you have dove's eyes. Now, that phrase dove's eyes is used five different times in the song. And we've already established that it's about her faithfulness and her devotion and her steady gaze fixed on him. And so he says, coming, I mean, right out of the gate in this, this moment of restoration, you're gorgeous. I love you. You're faithful to me. Amazing. Amazing. What do you feel the Lord's words are over you? Better yet, in a moment when you have repented out of a moment of sin and disobedience, what do you feel like the Lord is saying over you? Is he saying you're faithful to me? Is that the voice you're hearing? Or do you hear another voice? Do you hear a voice that says, you're not good enough. See, you blew it. You don't deserve my love, but I'll give it to you. Do you you hear the Lord that way? Because if you're hearing that, what you're doing is you're placing a lens of your own sense of shame and and a wrong view of God. You're placing it over him. And instead, he's not saying that you're not good enough. He's not saying that. He's saying you're faithful to me. I love you. You're beautiful. You're faithful. Be who I see you to be. Second, he says, your hair is like a flock of goats. Now, these symbols, they show up in multiple places in the scripture. A flock of goats is talked about um, as stately in manner. And what he's, what he's talking about, see the hair, it, it talks, it's, a, it's an emblem of submission. And he says, it's majestic, it's stately, it's honorable is the idea, the way you're submitting to me. So first he says, you're faithful, and he says, your hair is, is like a flock of goats de- descending uh, down Mount Gilead. And, and that's the place of fruitfulness and, and blessing. And, and, he's, and he says, you are, um, you are honorable in your, 
in your submission to my leadership because I love how you're, how you're following me now. Three, he says, uh, your teeth are like uh, a flock of shorn sheep that are, uh, have come up from the washing um, and, and everyone bears twins and, and there's none that's barren. And, and the, the teeth, they speak about digesting the word. Um, the word is, is like bread and, and with our teeth we, we eat, we, we digest the word. He says, you are, and, and the shorn sheep are sheep that have been, they've been um, cut free of their wool. The wool speaks of the flesh. He's saying, you're getting revelation from my spirit. You're actually digesting the word and it's fruitful. They're twins. There's an anointing on you, a, 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 a manifestation of revelation on you. He goes, in other words, you are hearing me. You are hearing me. Have you ever been in those moments of, of difficulty and you felt like, man, I just don't know. I just don't know what he's saying. And I repented. I turned to the Lord. And the Lord goes, you're faithful. You're submitted to my leadership. He goes, and you're hearing me. You're hearing my word. The fact that you're turning is a sign you're hearing me. You're receiving revelation and fruitfulness in the word. Next, he says, your lips are like scarlet. They have a scarlet strand on them. And, and what he's speaking about there is how she has begun to transition in her words. The lips, kisses of the mouth, they speak of words. And the scarlet strand, it speaks of the blood of the covenant, the blood of the cross. And he's saying, your speech has begun to be governed. I can see that in you. You're changing what you're talking about. He's calling out of, the, out of her this maturity, these emblems of maturity. And he says, your mouth is lovely. In other words, it's beautiful. You're speaking uh, not just uh, words that are governed by redemption and the cross and that are, that are um, sanctified, but that's beautiful to me. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. It's beautiful to me. Your mouth is lovely. And then he says, your, your temples are like pomegranates. That's talking about emotions that are sweet to the Lord. He goes, your heart's desire, your emotions for me, they're like fruit. They're like sweet fruit to me. And, and the fact that your temples, your face, your cheeks, that they're, they're like sweet fruit, it moves me. Your, your emotions of desire and intimacy with me, it, it, it's so sweet to me. And then he says, her neck, he says, your neck is like the Tower of David. Now, this is interesting because in the scripture, there is no reference to the Tower of David. Now, the neck turns the head and it represents the will. The neck raises and lowers the head. It turns it right and left. The neck represents the will. The Tower of David would represent David's will as established and given to the Lord. So her neck, like David's tower, he's saying this. He goes, I see in your heart things like David. I see that you have a heart after mine. And he's calling out that virtue of having being a, a person after God's own heart. Her will and her heart being pursuing him. And then finally, he says, your, your breasts are like fawns. He says, you're beginning to mature. Now, they're... they're now, later, she's going to give this reference to like towers, which would mean full maturity. Here, it's like fawns. It's, it's like uh, the beginning of maturity. He says, but you have now the ability to minister to others. That's, that's kind of what that, that emblem is, is that you are growing. 
and, and you're going you're gonna to be able to, to source other people and, and bless other people. And he's going to give these um, three emblems of waterways about how she is a source of water for others. And it's what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, um, that rivers of living water would flow from our innermost being. He's talking about how we're able to nourish and, and help others to grow and, and to come into the knowledge of God. Okay. So in verse 6, what happens is this. She now is going to undo the words that she said at the end of chapter 2. Remember, at the end of chapter 2, she says, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, go your way. Be like a gazelle on the mountains of Bether. Well, here's what she's doing in in chapter 4, verse 6. She says, uh, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. And she changes the phrase now. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. And so she's, in essence, she's sort of taking back what she said in chapter 2, verse 17, and she's replacing it now with a whole different life philosophy. And and so, uh, whereas before she says, I can't go with you until the darkness flees from my life, now she's saying, the only way that the darkness is going to flee from my life, that the gray areas are going to get, get removed, is by me going the way you're calling me to go. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh. Now, the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense, that speaks of the place of complete submission. Uh, it's the, it's the, the burial spices. It's the, it's the place of death. And so... Here's what she's come to realize. The best thing for her, the way to maturity for her, the way to get the gray areas to flee from her life is not by staying in her own comfort zone. She's come to realize that there, listen, there is a tailor-made path for her that he has constructed. She calls it my way. Now, it's the way that he has set for her. And she says, I will go my way until the darkness fades and the shadows flee away. I will go my way to that place of full submission, of of dying to myself, dying to my desires, dying to everything that I think is is important. And so it's a really critical thought. So often, believers... They look at the path that God has other believers on. And, 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 and I want to differentiate between the path that others are on and uh, the spiritual disciplines that others follow. Because following the spiritual disciplines and the manner of life of somebody that is um, your leader or like a spiritual father or like what Paul said, he goes, follow me as I follow Christ— that's a positive thing. And, and he says, you know, he said to the, the maiden in chapter one, he goes, uh, by the shepherd's tents. So there's, there is the discipline of, of spirituality that we follow those who are mature in. That is different than what she's talking about here. She says, I will go my way. And, and what she's saying is, I'm not going to look at the way he led anyone else. Hear this really clearly. M- my path is different than the path that others are going to walk. In fact, everyone has their own tailor-made path. And that path 
is the path that is going to bring me to maturity. So I'm not going to sit here and look at other people's journey in God and say, God, why didn't you lead me like that? Because what she's come to grips with is this. The journey that she's on is the necessary journey for her own maturity and love. The discipline that he's taken her through and the challenges that may be in front of her are unique for her. She's come to believe that he knows the exact ingredients to allow in her life to cause her to come to the greatest place of voluntary love, the greatest place of maturity in her affections and her emotions and submission to his will. And so she's saying, I'm going to abandon myself. I'm going to quit trying to do it my way. I'm going to go my way the way that he's prepared for me to the mountain of myrrh. I am laying my life down to go completely after him knowing it is going to bring me to the place of maturity and it's going to cause the shadows to flee away. I can't look at someone else's life and think God should have led me just like that and I would get the same results that they had. That is not how it works. Each of us has our own unique journey. And uh, I've looked at that so many times in my own life. I've seen how the Lord has had to shepherd me in ways to break me out of mentalities, philosophies, paradigms. He's had to shift things in my heart that he did in such a unique combination of, of events and circumstances that he had to lead me through those to, to work in me that I would never have gotten the places of, of entrance in the Holy Spirit, in the love of God, had he taken me another path. I realized that his leadership has been perfect. And so she's coming to that place right here. She goes, I'll go my way to the mountain of where, whatever it is, whatever it is you have for me, uh, I, I, I will go that way to to the mountain of Myrrh, the hill of frankincense. I remember when I was in Kansas City, uh, I had just been there for three months and uh, I had come to grips with the, the fact that there was no way I could plan a house of prayer. I was sitting in the prayer room thinking, oh my gosh, I've made a massive mistake. There's no chance that I can, I can do this. And I was asking the Lord to forgive me for being arrogant. And I'm, I'm there and I'm... I'm um, sitting in the prayer room and I'm beginning to weep and Misty Edwards is there doing a devotional and she won't get off of Song of Solomon 4 verse 6. She just keeps singing it over and over and over. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. And it's like the mountain of death. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm dying. Lord, I'm dying. I I'm so sorry. I've, I've messed up. I thought, man, I've made a major mistake. And what I realized the Lord was saying to me you know, in, in hindsight, he was saying, no, son, there's a path that I have for you that's going to cause you to come to a place of being crucified with me, that it's not the way you think it's going to be, but I have a way for you. And I want you to go the way I have for you to cause the gray areas to flee and, and the shadows to flee. And I remember that day just feeling like I am dying right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally dying. But I, I look at the last, that was, that was uh, almost 17 years ago now. I look at that now and I think he has had to steward me according to my way, away from me, not, not according to anyone else's path. 
and he has brought me to a place of love through the all the ups and downs, trials and challenges that I, I don't I don't think I could have ever gotten had he not bringing me had he not brought me this way. So that's what she says. I'm willing. I'm willing to die. I want to go the way that you have for me to bring me to mature love. His answer to her in, in verse 7 and 8 is again, you are beautiful. I love you. And he says, there's no spot in you. You're perfect. You're perfect. You see, beloved, it's not about perfect actions. It's about a perfect heart. A heart that desires the will of the Lord and his presence above everything else in your life. He says, there's no spot in you. And then in verse 8, he invites her again to the mountain. It's like, man, he just won't get off these mountains. He goes, come with me. Come with me. But this time he calls her something that he hasn't called her before. Come with me, my spouse. It's the first time he refers to her as his spouse in the song. And he's going to call her his spouse in verse 8, his spouse in verse 9, his spouse in verse 10, his spouse in verse 11, verse 12, his spouse. He says it over and over and over. And he is emphasizing this point that he is hers and she is his. And that's it, beloved. It's that submission of our will that brings us into bridal love. He says, come with me. And he names all these locations in the mountains. He's gonna, they're going to trample on scorpions together. They're going to they're gonna be like a gazelle together, just like he had invited her in chapter 2. And then verse 9. And this is the crescendo. This is the crescendo. He says, you have ravished my heart. My sister, my spouse, you have ravished my heart. With one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. And this is the central theme of the whole book of Song of Solomon. It's the central theme of the bridal paradigm of the kingdom. The bridal paradigm, obviously, is the view of the kingdom of God, that God is a bridegroom God, and he's preparing a, a wedding uh, for his son, Matthew 22, 2. But this word, he says, you have ravished me. It literally means you've snatched me away. You've captured me. You violently snatched me away, and you've delighted me to ecstasy. And this is the phrase that the Lord is speaking over you and me right now. Because you've ravished me. You've overcome me. You've caught me. You've captured me. And you and I need to spend long moments under this revelation. That the way that Jesus feels about you is nothing less than ravished. Nothing less than captured by you. Nothing less than caught by you. And when he, when he thinks about us, his heart is ravished. Uh, this is his approach to us. Extreme delight. Extreme pa passion. Tenderness. Kindness. Love. Affections. Desire. 
This is Jesus' heart towards his people, towards you and I. Not them, not the bride in general, you and I. Snatched away, caught away, delighted with ecstasy, overcome with emotions of delight. This is how Jesus feels towards you. Your little yes, your little desire. He says, you have ravished me. And I just want you to think about this, that God's emotions are set toward you in this way. And the implications of that are vast. They're incredible. But how does that compel our hearts? See, this is what brings us into this place of what we call happy holiness. The revelation of the ravished heart of God for us compels us to live in, in, a, in a lifestyle that's separated and not lascivious, not given to carnality. The, the idea that he is that enthralled and desirous and passionate and delighting in us, that's what compels the human heart to say yes to righteousness and no to unrighteousness. Without the revelation of the burning heart of the bridegroom God, then holiness is only about legislation. It's only about legal, legalistic rule keeping. But when we understand his great desire, his, his hunger and love for us, then it compels our hearts in, that in no way do we want to do anything that would, that would in any way forfeit his affections, that would in any way demean his desires for us. And so I just want you to think about that. He loves you with a burning, passionate, desirous love you've caught him. And if you have the love of God in this life, what else is there? What else do you need? If you've got his affections, you cannot lose. You have his, his delight, his pleasures. You cannot lose. You've already won. The love of God is for you. His heart and his desire and his approval is for you. There is nothing else you have to gain that could be in any way greater than the affections of the bridegroom God. And he says, you've ravished me, listen, with one look of your eyes. That means this, when we take one glance and look at Jesus, I love to say it this way, in the earth, there's you know, 7 billion people, maybe 700 million believers. That's one out of 10. When we look at Jesus, it's like we walk into a room with 10 other people and then Jesus walks in and nine turn away and your eyes meet his eyes and he is burning in desire and he is looking at you. He says, one glance of your eye, it ravishes me. It moves me with passion. And, and I just, I asked the question in the notes, if one glance ravishes him, what does a steady gaze do to him? Do you believe that? That when you close your eyes and you set your eyes on Jesus, that you move him with passion and delight, that you catch away his heart and you overwhelm him with pleasure. He says, one glance of your eyes. And then he says, one link of your necklace. Now, again, the neck speaks of the will. The necklace hangs over the heart. The, the, the one link of the necklace, you know, what does jewelry do? It beautifies someone for others to when they look at them. And, and so he's saying one attempt of your 
of your heart to try to, to be beautiful, to, to try to be obedient. One, even one attempt, one link of the necklace, he says, it ravishes me. The idea that your heart, that your will in any way would want to be determined to, to follow me, he says, I'm overcome. And beloved, this is the central understanding of the bridal paradigm, that God is a bridegroom God. He is ravished over us. He's ravished over his bride. He is deeply passionate, desirous, and delighted in us. He takes pleasure in us. And then he's going to go on and he say, how fair is your love? How much do I love your love? That's what God says to you and I. I love your love for me. And he says, I, I, your love is, your love is better than wine. Now remember how she starts off the song. She says, your love is better than wine. He goes, you know what? Your love is better than wine. When we're saying, I love you, your love is better than any other pleasure. He says, I love you. Your love is better than any other pleasure. And he goes and he affirms her. And, and, and he talks about her, 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 her words are, are sweet and, and her garments are fragrant. And he's talking about her, the works of her life. They, they're emblemizing the, the cross. And, and then he says, you're a garden enclosed. And, and this is a, such a powerful revel, revelation. He says, I see this. You're a garden enclosed. You've reserved your heart for me and me alone. You're a fountain sealed. You're a spring shut up. You're for me and me alone. And then in verse 15, he says, you're a fountain of gardens. You're a well and you're a stream. A fountain flows with refreshing. A well treasures up on the inside and a stream flows through. And so he's describing her now in this place of, of her affections and her, her, her heart that's buoyant in love. And he says, you are a source for many others. He's saying, I'm so taken with you and you've received of my love. He says, oh, you are a refreshing stream of delight to so many others. And then she answers. And this verse is the turning point of the book. And we're going to wrap up with, with verse 16. Up until this moment, she has seen him as a means to her happiness and her desire and her delight. But from this moment on, everything shifts. Uh, she even changes around how she refers to him. Instead of saying, my beloved is mine and I am his, she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. She puts her sense of being owned by him first. And so verse 16 is the middle part of the book. Everything shifts from right here. And she says this. She says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And so here's what happens. At the revelation of his love for her, and this is how our lives have to be processed. And when we re realize how much he loves us, we say anything anything, bring it on. Bring north winds, which are the chilling cold winds of trials and challenges. Bring south winds, the warm winds of refreshing and blessing. She says, I don't care what comes my way. Bring it on because all I want is my beloved to be pleased by the fruit of my life. 
His love is for me and I want to please him no matter what it is. I don't care if it's difficult and hard. I don't care if it's rich and blessed. It doesn't matter to me. All that matters to me is that he would be pleased. And beloved, this is the journey of maturity that every believer goes through. You have to go through this place of seeing Jesus as a means to your personal pleasure and your personal blessing to this place of seeing that you are his and that you are what delights him and that the goal of this life is his pleasure and not your own, bringing pleasure and glory to him and not trying to figure out how to, to, to gain all the pleasure and glory for yourself. And what she realizes, and this is the journey to maturity that every believer has to come to, what she realizes is this, the path to her own pleasure at the highest level is by bringing him pleasure at the highest level. Did you hear that? The path to you and me, to our greatest pleasure in this life is by going our way to the mountain of myrrh so that, and allowing north winds and south winds to come so that we can bring him the greatest pleasure. The pathway to our greatest pleasure isn't by us seeking pleasure for ourselves. The pathway to our greatest pleasure is by seeking pleasure for Jesus. And so she comes to grips with this, and that's why she says, whatever comes, north winds or south winds, bring it on. I don't care. Whatever it, whatever it is, bring it on that he can receive pleasure from the garden of my life, from the spices of my life, from the fruit of my life. And notice the last sentence there. Let my beloved come to his garden. His garden. She realizes she's not her own. And this is Paul in Galatians 2.20. He says, I am not my own. I've been crucified with Christ. He said in, he says in 2 Corinthians, he says in Galatians, he says, I've been bought with a price. I'm not my own anymore. Amen. Let me just pray. I want to pray for each of us and ask the Lord to release the revelation of his ravished heart onto our lives, into our lives. So, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would release the truth of your ravished heart. That you are caught by us with one glance of our eyes, one link of our necklace. That you are carried away. And that you say over us that our love is better than wine. Lord, bring us to this place of voluntary love and maturity in love where we're no longer looking for our own blessing and our own pleasure, but we're seeking to please you and to be a blessing to you as our means for greatest pleasure. Thank you, Lord. Do that in us all, I'm asking, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.